I'm Michael Smith. And I'm Chuck Osborne. And welcome to the Iron Capital Podcast. Where we break down investment stuff with anecdotes and stories that non-financial geeks can understand. Hey, this is Michael. And this is Chuck. It's Wednesday, September 13th. This is the fifth episode of the Iron Capital Podcast. Woo! <laughs> Let's get to it, Chuck. What's on your mind? Uh, Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett is on my mind. It's timely. It, it is timely. Uh, very sad. We lost him uh, just uh, last weekend. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, but yeah, he was on my mind, and I've uh, been traveling a lot, as you know, and mm-hmm. I tend to read. That's when I do most of my reading. And so um, I am reading a uh, book called The Twelve Rules by Jordan Peterson. And the uh, there's a couple quotes that came in that made me think of uh, Jimmy and how he lived his life and how so many times we talk about how investment lessons are often life lessons, you know. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that um, struck me, I was reading this book again, and one of the 12 rules that Peterson talks about is don't disturb kids while they're skateboarding. <laughs> and uh, so he tells this story about these kids that were skateboarding out in front of his university where he was a professor. And the, um, the powers to be came out um, and... Uh, basically put all these obstacles in their way so that they could no longer skateboard because they're worried about liability. safety, <laughs> and, safety and whatever, liability. Yeah. And he had this great quote that I, I thought was fantastic. He says, they weren't trying to be safe. They were trying to become competent. And it's competence that makes people as safe as they can truly be. Um, he then goes on and talks about, it reminded him of uh, an example several years ago, and I remember when this happened around here, where everyone uh, got really worried about the liability of school playgrounds, and they started taking all of the equipment off the school playgrounds, and then he's going by one of these schools where they've taken all of the fun stuff out of the playground, and what does he see? But some of the boys have uh, figured out a way to actually climb up on the school building or playing on the roof. <laughs> and, uh, and, and his point was that, uh, that humans, including children, because that's all, you know, they're just small humans, uh, we don't actually try to avoid risk. Uh, they seek to optimize it. And um, I just thought that was a, a great lesson. I think uh, that's kind of how Jimmy Buffett uh, led his life. And we talk a lot about that in investing as well. No, that's so. very true. And, you know, a lot of people don't know about, um, you know, Jimmy Buffett's connection to Warren Buffett. That's right. The Buffett cousins. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's <laughs> right. They referred to themselves as cousins. I don't think they really they were. really but, cousins. Um, but yes, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett, um, you know, he probably did live a lot of the stories that were in his songs, but he was not the character that is in his songs. Uh, Jimmy Buffett was no bum sitting on a beach uh, uh-huh. drowning his uh, liver in tequila. Um, he uh, was a businessman, a very uh, shrewd businessman. He was an investor in Berkshire Hathaway. With Buffett. With the other Buffett. Played at, their, played at the uh, Berkshire annual meetings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and he was a self-professed uh, workaholic. 
Um, and now he loved what he did, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, he, um, uh, you know, he, I, th- I think the thing he had in common with his songs was that he lived his life to the fullest. Yep. He embraced risk. He wasn't trying to avoid risk. He was trying to optimize risk. Yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, a lot of what's in his songs, and yeah. it's also a lot of, it, of how um, how he lived his life. Yeah, well, and that's a good segue into what we're we're going to talk about here, which is risk in general. Um, yeah, a lot of his music and in his the, the story he told was about you, you could think of it as the risk of not living a full life or not a full lived life. You right. Know? And in invest, yeah. we, what we're doing here is thinking about investing, right? Right. So there's risks as we traditionally think of risk. We can talk about it, but then there's in a lot of ways there's there's bigger and more important risks um, that still are are related to your investments that people probably don't spend enough time thinking about. So let's first talk about the risk as it now is traditionally defined, um, which is um, and people worry too much about, which is. Um, volatility. Why don't we talk a little bit about volatility and maybe quick history on where the, where the volatility and risk came from and how that became the idea right. of risk. Right. So, um, well, that's a great point because if you go way, way back, you know, um, that's not how people define risk. The, mm-hmm. um, that is not how, for example, Benjamin Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor, he didn't define risk in terms of volatility. He, ter- he defined risk in terms of actually losing money. Yeah, losing money. Um, and that's the way real people define risk. But the, um, the, the idea of risk being volatility largely came from Markowitz and the academic community and the idea of modern portfolio theory, uh, which um, you know, defined risk as um, um, standard deviation. And that's obviously a little, um, well, it's not even investment speak, that's uh, statistics. Statistical that's speech. statistics speak. Yeah. But uh, the standard deviation, if you have any you know, series of data points um, that uh, distribute some kind of pattern. So you can say in the very long term, you know, going back to 1926, the stock market gets a return of 10%. Uh, but it doesn't do that every year. You know, it, some years it's up 20 plus percent, some years it's down, et cetera. So the standard deviation is the, the, um, the standard difference or the average difference that you see um, on a yearly basis for that return, just as an example. Um, and so they define that as, uh, as risk. And then the, they go on and, um, and also define risk relatively uh, speaking, so, um, and they define that as beta is the industry speak that we talk about. But anyone that remembers their eighth grade geometry lesson, that uh, that is the slope of the line, uh, is what beta is. So if the uh, if you have an investment that has a beta of uh, one, then it should match perfectly with the market. If the market is up. Two percent, it should be up two percent. Mm-hmm. If the market's down two percent, it should be down two percent. It should march in lockstep with the market. If the beta is more than one, it's going to go more than the market uh, in both directions, and um, it's going to go um, less than the market if the beta is less than one yeah. percent. Theoretically, in both directions. Um, 
And so that's how risk is defined in um, the investment world. And the big problem with using volatility from our perspective uh, as the definition of risk is that investors in general um, don't get that upset about upside volatility. No, in fact, you need upside volatility, <laughs> right. right? I you need think, the price to move up. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. In the thirty years I've uh, thirty plus years I've been doing this, um, I have yet to meet a client who um, just goes, "We are making money way too the fast." The price is going up too much. I, right. I am. I really don't like this. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I did not yeah. mean for you to triple our investment. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. Um, the um, what they get upset about is when it when it goes down. Yeah. Well, and the problem with volatility too is that it's not. You know, it's, it's a historical measure. If you were investing in a pharmaceutical company, does how much its price moved in the past have any prediction on the fact that maybe a drug did not get approved? Right? No, absolutely. <laughs> so um, it's it's historical. Um, so you're at, that's a perfect example. You get a you could have a pharmaceutical company that's just. Um, minting money because they've got this great drug that's out there and you could take a look at their stock and it's just chugging along and it doesn't look volatile at all and then um, one bad piece of news comes out about that drug and the next day that volatility is yeah. going to go through the roof yeah and so right you're looking at this in the rearview mirror it's also the on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, many times the best and safest investments occur when there's a lot of volatility because um, the most opportunities in investing happen when babies get thrown out with the bathwater, when people panic and you've got all kinds of, you know, everyone's just selling everything regardless of whether it makes sense or not. And that's when the best opportunities are created. And in, you know, in retrospect, that's the safest time to yeah. invest, but it's also the most volatile time to yep. invest. So, so you're right. There's all kinds of problems with uh, trying to define risk in terms of volatility, but for better or worse, that's what the that's what the industry does. That's what it is. But and, and I think now's a good good segue to move into real risk. And I think it's really nice to put that in the context of, you know, we're always told, right? The world says that stocks are riskier than bonds. This is like a general rule that everyone in the world theoretically knows, right? And that's not always true. Um, let, let's talk about um, what happened with, with bonds in 2022 and you know how that translates to real risk, i.e. <laughs> the risk of right. losing money versus just the risk of price movements in something over a short period of time. Right, and that's another great example. One, of the, There's two reasons why bonds are considered safer than stocks. And part of it goes back to, again, you just the kind of the ABCs of investing. A stock is ownership in a company, and um, you are the owner. And so if the company's doing well, um, the owner's going to benefit. If the company's not doing well, uh, the owner's going to suffer. There's more volatility there. Whereas a bond is a loan. And um, you know, if a company or a government needs to borrow money, uh, they issue a bond, and they're promising to pay the money back plus interest. So part of the reason it is considered safer is that legal promise. It's yeah. because they're actually promising they're we, will promised you, we will pay you, we will pay your money, money back, back. Um, if you hold the bond to maturity. To maturity. The problem in reality with that is the vast majority of investors don't 
invest in uh, individual bonds. They invest in bond funds. And bond funds don't generally hold bonds uh, to maturity, nor can they. And so you are going to experience the uh, price changes in the bond just like you experience price changes in a stock. Um, And this is the second reason why bonds are often thought of as being safer is because they are less volatile. The the price does not move um, as much Usually, usually, uh, um, as as a stock. Um, so, you know, if you look at it by those two ways, you say, well, the, these are more uh, conservative yeah. um, investments. Uh, but here's the, the problem. Again, if you look at risk in a real sense, and this is the way Benjamin Graham taught his students to do it in terms of a margin of safety. Yeah. Um, bond prices work in the reverse um, of interest rates. Mm-hmm. So when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. When interest rates go down, bond prices go up. When we had record low interest rates, it also meant we had record high prices on bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, no asset is safe when you're paying record high prices. Yeah. And you know the people that poured into bonds thinking that they were safe when interest rates eventually did go up, which they finally did in 22, um, what happened was, at the worst, they were down about 13%. The bond market as a whole, as judged by the aggregate index, was down about 13%. Now, that doesn't sound as bad as the stock market, because we also, at the same time, had a bear market, and the bear market was down at the bottom about 26%. But here's the difference between stocks and bonds. Um, stocks will bounce back. The stocks have largely bounced back. They haven't gotten all the way back, but we've, the, gotten, a good we've back. gotten a good bit back already. Um, historically, vast majority of time, they're back within three years. Um, they're almost always back within five years. Um, that's what has happened in the past. Uh, for a bond investor to get back that 13% that they lost last year, it's going to take it's a, a multi-year long, game. long time because yep. bonds may be more attractive now that you're you're getting paid a four percent yield on a ten-year treasury versus a two percent uh, historically, uh, or I say historically the last fifteen years or so. But uh, you know, it's still four percent. You know, it's not going to it's not going to bounce back. It takes several years of clipping four percent coupons. Uh, to get back your 13%, and then you haven't actually gained anything. Yeah, you've just you, gotten back. All you've done is gotten back. Yeah. So. And I think you got to put the bond loss in perspective, right? Like a 28% stock market loss is very painful, but it's normal. Like this happens every five, six years. We're used to that. It's a painful right. thing, but it right. happens. Uh, bonds being down 13%, so that the index that we look at, the, the Barclays Ag now, right. goes back to 1974. It's the worst in that time period. 9.4 was the worst year prior to that since 74. There's other bond proxies that, that, you know, the 20s that it looks like maybe in the 26 or 27 were down that bad. But still the point is, you know, you've never had a worse bond market. Yeah, this is, that's an historic, it's a historic uh, moment. Event, a moment. It's, it's a once in a lifetime moment. And like I said, I mean, it's by far the worst um, that they've seen in the uh, in the history of the current index, the yeah. way it's structured, and you even think more, the safest of bonds is is treasuries, right? Right. From the government, a thirty-year treasury was down thirty percent. 
in the year. Right, right. Right? So well, it's, it's, yeah, and that is how bonds work. Yep. So you, you know, the farther you out are out on the uh, what we refer to as the yield curve. So which was just, um, you know, we our industry is great at making everything sound complicated and sound magical and something, you know, like, you know, how do you understand the yield curve? All that means is, you know, again, bonds are loans and there's different kinds of loans. So you can, um, you can borrow money on a credit card, which you pay back monthly. Hopefully you pay it back every single month Mm -hmm. and then you don't even have to pay interest or anything on it. And it's a great tool to use, uh, for flow purposes. Um, you know, obviously, if you hold a balance, that's not very wise uh, from a financial planning standpoint. Uh, but uh, um, still, hopefully, you're going to pay that back very quickly. Uh, you can borrow money to buy a car, which uh, historically has been anywhere from a three to five year loan. Now, because car prices have gone up, people are borrowing for longer uh, in order to keep their payment down. But, uh, but that's, you know, like, a, let's just say a five year loan. Uh, or you can buy a house and you borrow money to buy a house. Most people get the 30 year mortgage, you know, so you, you've borrowed that money for 30 years. Well, the government's the same way. They, they borrow money for different terms. And we tend to key on the 10 year treasury uh, for, for multiple reasons. Uh, but, uh, but right, you, you know, they borrow money uh, very short term, you know, one day overnight, 90 days, you can borrow money for 30 years. Yep. Um, and um, and that is what the yield curve is. That's all the yield curve is. It's just you take all those loans and you put them out by maturity and say, what is the price of all of these? Yeah. What's the interest rate you would get? Right, exactly. All these different times. And so, um, so, yeah, and the farther you out, you are out on the, that curve, the bigger price movement you're going to see. And if you think about that, it just... It just makes sense because if um, you know if you have a home mortgage, for example, which you bought or got you know a few years ago, you're probably somewhere between three to four percent on your mortgage if you have good credit, mm-hmm. you know, depending on where you live in the country. Also, but um, so if you're paying between three and four percent, and you're going to be paying that for thirty years. And now interest rates are almost twice that. Um, that mortgage has lost a lot of value uh, for the bank that's yeah. uh, holding it because yeah. um, they're still locked in to that uh, 3 to 4% yield uh, for that full 30-year yeah. period. Um, that's a lot of years of collecting less than market Then you could get the market return. right now. Right. Yep. And so, uh, whereas if you had only loaned the money for two years. It's not uh, that long. So what? You're getting your money back in two years where you can reinvest. Right. And yeah. you can reinvest pretty quickly. Yep. You're only missing out on the interest payments for two years. So Yeah. So Yeah. So that's a breakdown. So obviously, start with volatility short-term price movements. We start talking about real risk of actually losing money and bonds are a good example. Let's talk about other kind of really important risks that people don't talk about. Like one is the risk of being too conservative. Absolutely. Um, one of the things, and we should know this by now, you know, um, it's very interesting, you know, um, just recently on the news, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California came out and um, I think he's one of the first people that had a really strict lockdown who, who came out and just admitted to being wrong. Yeah. Um, and good for him for doing that. Um, because, 
it was wrong, you know, and, and that's the that's the kind of thing where uh, we're so focused on one thing. We're only focused on COVID and, and this pandemic and we're hyper focused on it and we want to stay safe. And that's, so how do we stay safe? We hide in our houses. Um, well, that is, um, again, trying to avoid risk as opposed to optimizing risk. Yeah. And and what got lost and we forgot that there is a risk to just staying hidden yeah, in your other, house. There's other risks. There are other that. risks. Long term. Um, you know, and we most notably, you know, with our children who, uh, you know, are lagging behind educationally, as well as emotionally and socially, because of of, of all of that. Um, uh, but, you know, we're communal beings. I mean, so we, you know, there are risks to staying locked up, and yeah. we didn't really, um, in many cases think that through and people do the same thing with investing you know so you know you think about um in a 401k investor for example you most 401ks will have what's called a stable value fund or if they don't they'll have a money market or some kind of guaranteed option where you're not going to see no any volatility, volatility. Yeah, right volatility goes there, to there's zero, there's zero volatility zero. you're never going to see a negative return and people think of that as being safe yeah um, but they're ignoring the, the, a much greater risk and the risk of them actually not getting the return that they need to actually pay for their retirement. And they're going to run out of money. Yeah. And that is an enormous risk that may be less obvious to them, but, but it's out there. And so, um, and that's what happens when you try to, um, avoid risk versus optimizing risk as, as Peterson said yeah and again it's it's the it's confusing volatility with real risk in a lot of ways a yeah. lot of these things we're going to talk about are going to be dealing with those issues right it's confusing short-term price movements with with the real risk of what is the point of investing it's actually there's some sort of a goal in mind that you're trying to hit <laughs> right and um, Volatility is simply what we make of it. And that's, again, this goes to the, that's why I loved his original quote about they're not trying to be safe. They're trying to be, become competent. Yeah. You know, now he's talking about skateboarding. They're trying to become good skateboarders. Mm-hmm. Um, but, this, you know, the same thing is true in investing. And it handling volatility is where the competence comes in. And mm-hmm. you're far better off if you become a competent investor than trying to hide um, away from um, from volatility. Yeah, um, and we see this, um, you know, in, in our world, you know, including, for example, how people will uh, sell things like pri- private equity. Yeah, alternatives of different Inter- types. Yeah. alternatives. Yeah, as if there's an alternative in investing, right? Right, right. <laughs> but private equity specifically is a, is a really great example to talk about. Yeah, and so this goes back, um, and you know we've been heavily influenced by David Swenson, who was the um, longtime chief investment officer for Yale University. For Yale. He unfortunately, endowment. yeah, for the endowment. Yeah, he um, he passed away a handful of years ago, but um, but he's just absolute legend in our business. And he wrote a great book called Pioneering Portfolio. Pioneering. Yeah, we should we should link to that Pioneering Portfolio. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah. Pioneering Portfolio Management is the name of the book. Um, it is a little heady for the layperson, but if, it, you know, but if you're in the business or if you're really serious about investing, um, it's, it's, a good one. it's a great it's a great read. 
The, uh, but one of the things he became famous for at Yale was his use of so-called alternative investments, including private, private equity. equity. And uh, there's a couple things that people always miss about that. First was um, he, you know, this really came to light in kind of the early 2000s. This is when interest rates really started to become historically low. And what they often miss is that he didn't actually replace, for the most part, his equity exposure or his stock exposure with alternatives. He replaced his fixed income exposure yeah. with alternatives because interest rates were so low and bonds were so expensive. Yeah. And interest rates low for him were a big deal because? Well, because this is an endowment. And so in a, the way endowments work, very much the way a retirement uh, portfolio would work while you're in retirement is that you know um, he's got to pay out a certain amount a year. Uh, standard endowment kind of payout would be somewhere around five to six percent. Um, I, did, I can't remember exactly. Five was what they were doing for years at Yale. Okay, so yeah. five was what they were doing at Yale. I didn't recall specifically what the uh, the Yale uh, payout was, but he's got to hit that five percent payout every single year because Yale is relying on it um, and um, and then uh, on top of that he they want to actually grow the endowment He's grow. so you know his actual uh, needed return is going to be more around seven or eight percent and you're not going to get a seven or eight percent return if you got a big chunk of your money in bonds at a two percent interest rate yeah I mean just even if the math at, doesn't even work. At five. right the math doesn't work and the um, so that is um, um, you know that that is the first thing that people miss about what he did is that he was not replacing the equity he was replacing the uh, fixed income portion of the portfolio w with most of the alternatives um, especially hedge fund strategies mm -hmm. um, now as far as the private equity and he made a big deal about this and and which is uh, and everyone should um, so private equity is really no different than public equity it's stock in a company it just happens to be a company that isn't publicly traded on one of the stock exchanges all right so um, um, what makes owning a company that isn't publicly traded any different than owning a company that is publicly traded? Well, the only real difference from the investor's standpoint is liquidity, all right? So if you own stock in a public company uh, that trades on a stock exchange, you know, every business day that the stock exchange is open between 9.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern time in New York, you can buy or sell that stock and and get rid of it. Um, if you own stock in a private company, you can't do that. Yeah, you can't. Right. You, 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 you don't have, have a price. <laughs> right. You have to find another buyer, buyer who's willing to buy the stock from you yep. um, in terms of private equity. So... Um, so what happens with private equity, because they're not unlike public equity, uh, we don't know what that other buyer would buy that stock for. for. 
at any given time because you know there isn't a market there's no market for no it. one's telling you precisely that you know at your google that right 130 is worth is whatever price it what, is whatever price it is yeah um, and what that means is that when you know the economy goes down whatever there's some kind of panic uh, the market goes down um, you see that in the public company you do not see that in the private company yeah but not seeing it didn't mean that it didn't it's not happening doesn't mean it's not there yeah and that's the thing that um, a lot of investors miss with private equity and frankly, a lot of our colleagues, I mean... Uh, well, yeah, what's happened is, so Swenson invested for a multi-billion dollar endowment. And they invested with the best private equity managers, and the money stayed with those managers for at least 10 years. They couldn't pull it for 10 years. That's the liquidity. Right. And so, and after they sold it for 10 years, they made good returns, and partially because they have this liquidity premium, because they couldn't go liquidity. Right. But now that has moved, and, and he didn't, you know, he invested because he thought those were good long-term return streams. Now that's moved downstream to individual investors. So people that like are advised by RAAs like us, more and more of those are pushing people into private equity investment. Now why are they pushing people into private equity investment? And part of that is the reason because of the fact that they don't price daily. They're saying they are claiming that it's safer. Yeah, so a private right. equity often is full of, full of technology companies. So in 2022, you have people that have these slugs of private equity. These are early stage technology companies whose valuations are through the roof if you were really valuing them, right? And if you had to actually value them and they were publicly traded, their prices would have probably been down 80 to 90% at the worst of the market in 2022. But individuals who had that on their statement didn't see those price movements. And they are told that those didn't happen, right? That right. even though their investments really did go down. If you had tried to sell them, you would have had to have taken an 80 to 90 percent If hit. you had sold them, you would have taken an um, 80 to 90 percent hit. And you're right. So there's two parts uh, uh, to Swenson. And Swenson makes a big deal of this in his book. Um, first of all, because Yale has a huge endowment. As you said, you're talking about billions of dollars. Um, he had access to anyone and everyone, um, and so he could get the cream. The greatest the, right, um, private equity investors. The best of the best. Um, the second thing is they, they had a lot of leverage in terms of price. Mm-hmm. Um, and Swenson goes on and on about how you know he did not pay the normal uh, fee structure of a private equity limited partnership, and that's how they're all structured um, arrangement. So it um, didn't pay anywhere close to that. Yeah. And um, historically, there's an idea in investing, and we I learned this in college, and every investor learned it, that supposedly private equity should get you a higher rate of return because you are sacrificing the liquidity. Um, today, it certainly does not look like that is the case. Um, it has not been the case recently. Um, it is not the case with most private equity managers. It is certainly not the case when you start factoring in fees. Yeah. And um, what happens is you have a lot of people who keep claiming that, well, these things are safe because look. The price doesn't move the, when the market goes the, down. The price doesn't move <laughs> until we go out and actually try to find someone to sell this to. Yeah. 
and um, and then oh my gosh, we can't sell it for what we thought we could sell it for. Yep. And so, um, you know, um, that's it. And the um, um, and there's we're not the only ones that have talked about this. Uh, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, the other Buffett cousin, has referred to it as being fraudulent. Um, which I think is a little strong, um, yeah. but um, but he but he didn't. <laughs> he, um, he's an old man, so he can say what he wants. Uh, you know, other people have come out and made comments about how um, you know the way these things are being sold is not accurate, and I do think um, there you, you know um, there should be a distinction here. Uh, because when people say that private equity is somehow safer than public equity, um, that is a lie. There's no other word for it. That's that is untrue. Is a, is a lie. Um, the but there's a difference between um, saying a lie or repeating a lie and being a liar. Um, I think a lot of there are a lot of people who are pushing these things who quite frankly just don't understand what they're pushing. Um, and they are simply repeating the lie that has been told to them. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, um, that they're lying, but, uh, but it is, it's just simply not true. Now I will say this because the money's locked up and you're not able to panic, <laughs> you know, contractually, um, a lot of investors may end up getting a better um, experience in private equity, but that's because of their behavior. Because they can't sell. Because they couldn't panic <laughs> they and couldn't sell, sell at the wrong, the, at the wrong time. Um, that allows them to make more money. I mean, that's how you know people often talk about their houses being great investments. Houses are a horrible investment. Um, especially if you really truly factor in the cost, the years of property tax, all the maintenance, all the different, you know, small little renovations that you've done over the years. If you add up all those costs, uh, people do not make money on a house very frequently. Um, uh, and especially if it's your home that you live in uh, for, for a, a period of time. Uh, but people think they do because the price that they sell it at years after they it's bought higher. it is higher. And in a lot of cases, they may that may actually be one of their better investments because... They can't sell. They can't sell. And no one is knocking Easily. on... Right. And when, you know, and when real estate prices go down... Uh, there's nobody buzzing their phone every couple minutes going, you know, um, you, you, the price of your house is falling, the price of your house is falling, the price yeah. of your house is falling. You don't see yeah, that. And you don't, you don't, you don't, right, get on your yeah. phone at 930 in the morning and see that your house value is down and then just watch it continue to go down all day until four o'clock and yeah. then have people get on the news to talk about how your house is worth a lot less than it was and all of this thing that provides the fear that causes people to do things that are less than wise. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, real quick, I just wanna say this and then we'll move on to the next. Private equity and alternatives. If you are extremely, even an extremely wealthy person, our experience has been, if you invest in alternatives as an individual, um, you're gonna invest in lower quality subpar managers that aren't as good as the greatest. You're gonna pay too high fees. Yeah. 
you long-term returns will be lower than if you had just been in public markets. However, <laughs> you experience less volatility, and that's what that's what you're sold on. Yeah. So they're just generally not great. So we can move to something else. But I think that's yeah. that's the short down and dirty on alternatives for even very rich individuals. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the um, no, you're absolutely right. And we uh, we have seen situations where you have people where when you actually start to unravel those um, fee arrangements, uh, they're paying as much as 9% fee. Yeah, it's wild. And you can't... You can't overcome that. You, that that's not something that can be overcome. No. The, I yeah. mean, the, the, the long-term expected return, like we said, from the stock market is 10%. Uh, from private equity, if there's an illiquidity premium, you might be talking about 12%. Yeah, and if you're getting the top quartile managers. Right. And the right, and so um, you, you end up paying fees that are as high as nine percent, and yeah, yeah, you that, have no volatility and no return. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and um, uh, right, and you're going to continue to lose money because again, you you think you found something that is somehow magic, safer <laughs> or magic yeah. or, yeah. or what have you. Um, yeah, and then and then someone calls the fire department. Yeah, that's so, the alternatives. So there is that. All around yeah, fire. right, right. All right. It's always always fun to record live. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so we're getting close to the end. A couple other things. One of the biggest risks, risks, <coughs> period, that people don't think about is not taking advantage of your 401k match. Talk about that, and we can do that quickly, but just explain that real quick. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we talk to all different kinds of investors. I think we're unique in that uh, respect because. Um, we have some very sophisticated um, institutional clients that are large plan sponsors. And uh, for many of them, we um, then sit down and talk to all their employees. So we, we talk to a lot of uh, normal blue collar employees. And you'll have, um, I, I have run into this individual more than once, the, the, um, the very shrewd um, fixed uh, interest rate investor who doesn't take any risk and, and always just invest in you know guaranteed you know CDs or at a bank or or the stable value fund in their plan and um, and they'll come up like in a 401k presentation and goes well what do you what's your rate because I can go down to my credit union and get you know four percent four percent five percent you know yeah. whatever the the yeah. number is. Um, I can get that at the credit union. What are you doing in your stable value fund in the in the retirement plan? Um, and first of all, as we've mentioned already, putting all your money in those kinds of investments is an enormous mistake. You're taking on a, a, a huge risk of not having enough money uh, when you retire because you're just not going to get an adequate return. But but here's the thing: they're missing. If you're not at least taking the money that your employer is matching, okay, the average match is about fifty cents on a dollar for you know for most employers, and it will vary depending on the employer. Uh, but uh, for that amount, let's just say as an example, you can put six percent into the plan and get fifty cents for a dollar for every percent you put in the plan. Uh, that's a fifty percent return. That's a fifty percent return for do, return for doing nothing. for doing nothing before you even put it anywhere. Yeah. All right. So so you just put a dollar in the plan. 
your employer just gave you an extra 50 cents and for every dollar you put in the plan you got a dollar 50 actually in your account yeah. before you've done anything um and that doesn't even and we're not even talking about the the tax savings no all we're right. talking about is because dollar for dollar right because that dollar that um you put in the plan you know you know depending on what your withholdings are um cost you anywhere from 75 to 80 cents for most average people um you know because that's the, the tax savings that you're getting and um so for 75 or 80 cents out of your pocket you're putting a dollar 50 into your retirement account what you, there's no there, better investment the credit union ain't going to match no, that no one's, no one's, no one's <laughs> it, matching that investment. right yeah they're, they're not doing that for you yeah. and um so that is that is but it we've seen it i mean i i, I can um i can tell you time. multiple times that we have run across that person yeah. who who just they're not going to invest in anything but the fix whatever the fixed investment is they're pretty confident and they're they're very oh they're very confident about it and right and they yeah. got a guy that can you yeah. know you know um, um you know yeah it's usually a credit union yeah so. it's always good so all right and then the last thing we talked a lot a decent about this last time on our on episode four but obviously a huge thing to watch out for fraud and i think we can do that pretty quick right the right. one thing we we really talked about last time was one one of the biggest ways to cut down the chance of investment fraud is simply have your money custodied or held by someone different who advises you on your money right that right. cuts down on huge amount of the potential for investment fraud yeah but it's also like yeah it's um if it sounds too good to be and true just generally it, it is anything that sounds too good to be true there's nothing for free it is um there's nothing that's going to be given to you for right. free in any but especially in the competitive world of investing i'm always amazed because you know we um <clears throat> you know we pride ourselves with trying to be extremely honest and candid uh, with people mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the hardest thing that we do in our job is to convince a new, you know, prospect to actually become a client. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely amazes me how these uh, fraudsters are able to get people to so easily separate from their money. <laughs> if you promise someone the money. But, um, but anyway, it, it is, um, uh, yes, if it sounds too good to be true, it is there is no return in investing or in life without taking a risk and the the key is um you know you need to just like you need to live your life to the fullest i mean you, if you look at um, a guy like jimmy buffett um and he died tragically too young he was only in his 70s which is not old in today's standards uh, but he lived uh, he lived a full life. He lived his life, life. to the fullest. And, um, and he left a legacy that will be remembered f for a long, long time, um, especially for anyone who spends any time on boats <laughs> or near a beach. Or, That's right. Um, you're going to hear a Buffett song. Yep. Um, he very famously 
um, always said he was just an adequate guitar player and he didn't have a very good voice. And I actually think that was part of his magic because the average person can sing a Jimmy Buffett song and they don't sound that bad. That's pretty good. It's not like when you try to sing I Will Always right. Love You by Whitney Houston. That's some high notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't, that you, doesn't hold up. You can't do that with Whitney Houston. <laughs> no. Right, right. You're not going to do that, not even in the shower when yeah. you're alone. So um, that is not... Um, yeah, Wendy Houston is not going to work, but uh, but you've got to actually uh, you've got to take risk. And when it comes to investing, it's not about avoiding the risk. We talk about being risk averse versus risk avoidant. Um, what that oftentimes means is that you've got to be competent. Yeah. You know, it, it gets back to what Peterson said: we're not trying to be safe; we're trying to become competent. We want to be competent investors. Who um, who make prudent decisions and um, optimize the risks that we take? Don't sit there and avoid risk. It's not just minimum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you want to leave them with something? Yeah. Well, I mean, and one of the things that anytime you take risk, and like in life or anything else, you can always think about like what is really the worst case scenario? What's the worst thing that can happen to us? And I think you just got to remember what Jimmy said. Come Monday, it'll be all right. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right, on that note, uh, you know, leave us any comments, please, and tell us if there's anything you would like us to talk about specifically. We're always needing new, uh, new material to, to talk about, so we'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Capital Advisors is an independent registered investment advisory firm headquartered in Atlanta with clients nationwide. Learn more about us at ironcapitaladvisors.com. The Iron Capital Podcast is produced by Iron Capital Advisors. Our awesome original theme music was written and performed by Michael Smith and Leah Calvert. This content is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or advice. Clients and employees of Iron Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Please like and subscribe to the Iron Capital Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another episode soon.